John chapter 8. And in a similar sort of vein to last week, we are going to just look at somebody who encountered Jesus. Last week it was Bartimaeus. And this week it's uh, this lady here, or this is a representation of her, in John chapter 8. Now, the context of John chapter 8 is that Jesus is at a feast in Jerusalem, which is called the Feast of Tabernacles. And there are two aspects to the feast. There is what's called a water ceremony, and Jesus has gone to that in John 7 and said, If anybody's thirsty, come to me, which is quite a bold offer. And then in chapter 8, later on in the chapter, after what we're going to read here, he says, I'm the light of the world, another bold claim. So he basically says, you come to me for, for water if you're thirsty, and you come to me for light if you're living in darkness. And in the middle, in between the offer of water and the offer of light, there is this slightly grubby little story at the start of chapter 8 about a woman who has been caught in adultery. And let me just read the, the text to you and then we'll, we'll take a look at it together. So, at dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery and they made her stand before the group. And said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Messy little story about this woman and the Pharisees bringing her to Jesus. But I think it's here for a reason. If Jesus has made the claim that he's going to offer water to the thirsty and light to those in darkness then it has to work for people like this. The gospel has got to work for everybody. It cannot only work for a certain type of person with a certain type of background. It has to work, if that's the right word, for every single person on the planet. So first of all, we've got these Pharisees, these religious guys coming to Jesus. Now, this is a setup. It has got to be a setup. Because the law that they're trying to trap Jesus with required that two people had to witness the crime. Which means two of the Pharisees had to witness this woman in the act of adultery. They had to see it and then bring the woman to Jesus. So it 
obviously is a setup, right? It is, it is a fix. They have used her. They have tricked her. They maybe have employed or got a man involved in order to trick this woman because they just want to use her as bait to try and trap Jesus and put him in an awkward position. It had to be a fix. And one of the questions you have to ask as well is, you know, there's somebody missing from this whole picture. We have the Pharisees who have caught the woman and brought the woman to Jesus, but there's somebody missing. Who's missing? Any ideas? Last time I checked, it you know requires two people to commit adultery. The man is nowhere to be seen. And it's quite typical of religion that religion treats, the Pharisees represent religion. Religion treats men and women differently. And in that age and in that culture, women were of lesser value. They still are frequently in lots of parts of the world. Jesus gave women value. He gave them dignity. And Paul writes in Galatians 3 at the bottom of the screen there, in Galatians 3, 28, Paul says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor flee. <laughs> flee. <laughs> There's neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. That does, mean, does not mean that people stop being male or stop being female. What it means is it doesn't matter. It doesn't give one person value over somebody else. In a culture that valued men over women, Jesus says and his gospel says, no, we are all equal. We are all equal. But the man has not been brought in this scene. It is just the woman who was brought. And they do not care. These religious guys, and you are going to hear me beat on religion a little bit. Not that I've never done that before. I don't want you to misunderstand what I mean by religion. This is really, really, really important. Religion does not mean a more traditional way of doing church. That is not what I mean by religion. Religion does not mean using older songs rather than new songs. That is not religion. Religion is not wooden pews. That's not what I mean by religion. Those are different traditions and those are fine. Okay? Religion means people who on the outside look the part, but their hearts are rotten. That's what we're talking about. People who put on a show of godliness, a show of having it all right and having it all sorted, but inside, Jesus says, you're full of death. (laughs) Religion is all about what's on the outside and what can be seen. Jesus is interested in transforming us from the inside out. So when you hear me talk about religion, don't think I'm not going against a certain church tradition. Don't misunderstand me. I'm going against people who have it all glossy and shiny on the outside, but inside no transformation has occurred. Jesus is not indwelling. And religion does not care that this woman is going to die. Doesn't care about her life. She, that, you know, they have brought her there with the intention that she will be stoned. Now, if you just think about it for a while, that, you know, dying is never going to be a pretty thing, but that is a particularly horrific way for a human being to die. And they don't care. Right? 
They don't care about her. She may die. And sometimes whenever we are actually bringing Jesus to people, it is a matter of life and death. I have a friend, Ian, over in Glasgow, working for Glasgow City Mission. I've always threatened to pay for a flight for him to get him over here and spend a weekend with us. He's got some story, he really does. But he works with people in the recovery community, heroin addicts. And the people he works with, they come in and literally he does not know when they walk out the door if he's ever going to see them again. Because if they go and shoot up in heroin one more time, that might be it. It's life and death. And Jesus is interested in life and death. The religious guys with this woman, they don't care what happens to her at all. They humiliated her. They, they, they put her in front of the crowd. They put her in front of Jesus. And they don't care about her at all. And one of the things that I learned from that is that religious people who are all on the outside, all external, but nothing in the heart, they don't know how to handle sinners. They don't know how to handle people with compassion and grace. These guys pretended or they gave the impression that they represented God. But there's a word used in the Old Testament for God about two or three hundred times. It's the word hesed in Hebrew. Say hesed. hesed. There you go. You've all pronounced it wrong because I told you to. Because it's one of those words, if you really want to pronounce it right, you have to sort of go like that. And it's really quite unpleasant. But anyway, hesed is how it's, it would be written in English. It means mercy, kindness, loving kindness, goodness. It's the character of God. And this woman did not encounter hesed from the religious people. Not one ounce of it. Nothing. And they, if they are representing God, that's the character of God that is revealed in the Old Testament over and over and over again. And they are not representing him clearly. So that's, that's the response that she gets from them. That's how they treat her. Not interested in her life at all. But they give Jesus a bit of a dilemma. Because the law says that she should be stoned for what she did. And Jesus now is in a sticky sort of a position because if he lets her live, then he is contradicting what's written in the law and the religious people won't like him. If he lets her die, then he will lose favor with the common people that she comes from. And he's stuck in the middle with a decision to make, and no matter what he does, somebody's going to turn on him. So he does the only sensible thing that any mature adult would do in a situation like this. He gets down and he starts to doodle on the ground with his finger. Okay, can you see him? Dusty sort of road or whatever, and, and they have thrown this question at him. So far he hasn't spoken. This woman is in front of him, her life hangs in the balance, and he gets down, stoops down, and, and literally what it says is he writes on the ground with his finger. And then the question everybody wants to know the answer to is, what did he write? Yeah? Well, we don't know what he wrote, because we don't need to know. And we'll see a wee bit later, 
that there's a lot of power in what he's doing here as he stoops and writes with his finger in the dirt. But there's no point in trying to guess what he wrote. Okay? Because if John wanted us to know what he wrote, John would have told us. And in this case, John doesn't. He just says he stoops down. That's important. Down he goes. And he writes in the dust. And then look what he does next. There's an important little sequence here that we'll pick up on in a minute or two. So he goes down and he writes in the ground with his finger. He then challenges them, the religious guys, about their own sin. And basically, you've brought this woman to me. You're dissing on her. You're telling me about the things that she's done wrong and what should happen to her. right? And they're all standing, holding their rocks, ready to start throwing rocks at her head. And he, sa- he starts to challenge them and he says, if you are without sin, start chucking your rocks. Okay, You work away. Because he knows that none of them will be able to do it. So he challenges them about their own sin. And then he gets down and he writes on the ground again. Now, hold this because you know what we do here. We, we're going somewhere. We will come back to it. He writes on the ground he challenges the religious guys about their own sin. And then he goes down and he writes on the ground again. And then they leave. Now it's brilliantly represented. I'm not sure which one of the Jesus films it is. It might be Mel Gibson's film. I haven't seen the whole thing. I've never actually brought myself to watch it. I need to probably. But there's, there's one of the Jesus movies where you just literally see the rocks start to drop to the ground. And the guys turn and walk off. Because they know they cannot go through with what they've planned to do. They go away one at a time until it's just Jesus and the woman. And not only do religious people not know how to handle sinners, but religious people don't know how to handle Jesus. You see, Jesus and religion cannot mix. Do not misunderstand me. I'm not talking about traditional churches. I'm talking about external religion. Jesus and religion don't mix. If we were in the chemistry lab and I was doing my thing in school, I would use this big word here, immiscible. Have you ever poured oil onto water and the two of them don't mix? They sit in two layers, separate from each other, repelling each other. That's like Jesus and religion. He just doesn't do it. He does transformation of the heart of a human being. He takes up residence by his spirit within a human being and changes them and empowers them. He doesn't do religion, okay? He has no time for it. And religious people cannot handle Jesus. They just can't handle a guy who allows a prostitute to come to dinner and pour perfume over his feet. They don't know what to do with a God like that. I know what to do with a God like that. Worship him. Yeah, Follow him. They don't know how to deal with a God who turns water into wine at a wedding. They don't know how to deal with him. They don't know how to deal with a God who walks past a beggar on the side of the road who's blind and actually stops to pay attention to him and transform his life. They can't handle Jesus. Yeah, religion just can't deal with them. They try to put him in a box and he just wrecks the box over and over again. 
And for those of you who have walked with Jesus for any length of time, you will know yourselves the joy of just knowing that every time you think you've got him sussed, he just gets bigger and better and he wrecks the box that you try to put him in. Religious people are interested in right and wrong. This is important. External behavior, what's right and what's wrong. Jesus is interested in life and death. The two trees in the garden, there was one about the knowledge of good and evil. There was one about knowing right and wrong. And God said, don't don't eat from that one. The other tree was a tree of life. (laughs) That's what Jesus is interested in. Not what's right and wrong. Those things sort themselves out as the overflow of life. Jesus comes and he offers life. That's what he's interested in. So what about this random little sequence of events that that went on there a few minutes ago with this woman where Jesus stooped and wrote on the ground with his finger and then he challenged their sin and then he stooped and wrote on the ground with his finger again. Now, let me just explain what's going on there before we draw things into a close. Jesus is doing something from the Old Testament. If you have your Bible, I don't have this on the screen. So if you have your Bible, you can, you can turn, I'm going to read it anyway, to Exodus 31. And I just want to show you what Jesus is doing. What he wrote is not important. The fact that he stooped and wrote with his finger is what is important, not the actual words. In Exodus 31, 18, it's the very end of Exodus 31, you've got Moses up the mountain with God. And this is the only time in your Bible that you read of anyone writing with their finger. When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the testimony, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. Now, the picture there is that Moses met God on the mountain. You might have seen one of the movies, you know, the Ten Commandments movies. And God gave Moses the law, and it was written on two tablets of stone. And it says that the the law was written by the finger of God. So you have this picture of God stooping down and writing with his finger and giving Moses the law. And in John chapter 8, Jesus, who is God bends down and writes with his finger on the ground. He's got these religious guys in front of him, throwing the law in his face and saying, this woman should be put to death. And he basically gets down and by what he does, he says to them, I wrote the law, okay? You are throwing this in my face. This is my law. I wrote it. I am the one who actually wrote the law with my finger for Moses. I am God in front of you. You don't know who you're dealing with. You don't know who you're dealing with. But if you know the story of Moses and the Ten Commandments, you will know that when Moses came down the mountain, he lost the rag and threw the tablets on the ground and broke them. And God then had to write them a second time. Okay? 
So God wrote with his finger and then they got broken and God had to write with his finger again. You see, Jesus in John 8 stoops and he writes with his finger and then something happens and he writes again because he's mimicking what God did in the Exodus. But in between, if we back up a wee bit just to show you what happened in between, he challenged them about their sin. Now, this is, the, I tell you, this is the key to understanding this whole passage. There's so much going on, more than just a nice little story. He challenges these religious guys about their sin after writing once and before he writes a second time. And whenever you read the story of Exodus, what happens between the first time that God wrote and the second time that he wrote was that his people worshipped a golden calf. They engaged in idolatry. They put their trust in something else other than God. And that's what made Moses so angry to break the tablets of stone that the law was written on. And the reason why Jesus is doing what he's doing and in between the two writings he challenges their sin is because these religious guys were also acting in idolatry. They were putting their trust in their ability on the outside to do the right stuff. To keep all the rules. To get it all right. That was their idolatry. Idolatry does not mean that you're bowing down to worship a little statue or a stick or a golden calf or whatever. It means you are putting your trust for your life in something other than God. And in the story of the Exodus, they worship this golden calf. And in the story of these Pharisees, they worship their own ability to keep the rules and do everything right. And if you read the Old Testament and you see the big picture of it as a whole, you'll find that idolatry among God's people over and over again is likened to one particular sin. And the sin is adultery. Being unfaithful. That's what comes up again and again. God says, I'm your husband. My people are my bride. But my people are an adulterous people. Because they keep going after other gods. And sure enough, in this, the whole background of this story and this scene is the adultery that this woman has committed. But Jesus is turning it all on its head and he's pointing it at the Pharisees instead of pointing it at her. So that's why he wrote with his finger and that's why he did it twice. Don't sit and wonder what did he write. It's not important what he wrote. What's important is that he's putting it back to them and saying, I am the God who wrote the law and you are idolaters because you're trusting in your own religion instead of trusting in me. But there's one more point in this sequence. If you follow the story in Exodus, in Exodus 32, you've got God writing, or Exodus 31, God writes with his finger. In Exodus 32, you've got the sin of the golden calf and the idolatry. Then God writes again. And then in Exodus 34, we do you see what God shows to Moses? It says in verse 5 of Exodus 34, The Lord came down and stood there with him. 
and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord. Now listen to the character of God that Moses sees at the end of this sequence of writing and sin being challenged and writing again. Where do you see what Moses sees about the character of God? The Lord is compassionate. He is gracious. He is slow to anger. He's abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. That's the character of God that is revealed to Moses. And then look and see what the woman experiences with Jesus. Because the Pharisees have brought her to be stoned. He has done his thing and challenged them and they have left. And he says to her, where are the ones who were condemning you? Where are all the voices that were coming and telling you you were this and you were that and you're the other thing and you should be put to death? Has no one condemned you? And she speaks for the first time. Says, now there's no one here. They've gone. And then Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. The first thing she hears from him, regardless of her life, which has been so horrifically exposed publicly in front of all the gathered people who were coming to hear him teach, the religious guys, she's just thrust into the dirt and the first thing she hears from Jesus is, I don't condemn you. (laughs) That's the gospel. I don't condemn you. She receives compassion, grace, forgiveness, Hope, dignity, restoration, because she has encountered Jesus. An exact same sequence. Sorry to keep hitting on it, but people get confused in this passage and they wonder what's going on. And I want you to go away and enjoy it. He writes with his finger. He challenges sin. He writes with his finger. He shows the character of God. It's the same stuff that happened back in Exodus. The character of God was revealed to Moses and the character of God is revealed to this woman. I don't condemn you. From the word condemn, we get the word damn. I don't damn you. (laughs) I'm not subjecting you to damnation. That's not why I'm here. That's what she hears. Religion says, girl, you're going to die. And Jesus says, I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. And not only does he not condemn her, he doesn't leave it at that. It's not just a case of, I don't condemn you. You've got away with it. (laughs) Away you go. No, he says to her, it's gone. He says to her, go now at the end of verse 11. I have it somewhere. There it is. Go now and leave your life of sin. That's really important. Because... The gospel is not just that we are forgiven. It's not just the top part of what's written there. That's what the cross does. I don't condemn you. But the gospel doesn't stop there. He says to her, go now and leave your life of sin. And when Jesus says that, when God says that, when God says anything, his word has with it the power to make it happen. 
It's not like if I say to you, do something. If I say to you, do something, you choose whether you do it or not. Okay? My words do not make it happen. But when Jesus says something to us, his word is accompanied with the power of his spirit to make it happen. So when he says to her, go and now and leave your life of sin, it's not just a case of hopefully she will. All the best, love. You know, I hope, I, hope we're, I hope you're okay. This is what you should do. No, the very words themselves are accompanied by the power for her to do it. The gospel is not just about your past being forgiven. It is. It's about your present being empowered and transformed and your future guaranteed. Don't take people to the cross and leave them there. Bring them to the cross. Bring them to Jesus. Bring them to forgiveness and then tell them about an empowered, transformed life that comes with it. And he says to this woman, go now. There has to be a change. There has to be a transformation. Anyone who has encountered Jesus will change. You have no choice. (laughs) If you don't change, you've never encountered him. And it might not be overnight. In fact, it probably won't. It takes time. But you will change. A, A guy called Paul Washer used the brutal illustration. If you get hit by something really big, you won't look the same afterwards. Like a bus. Okay, that was his illustration. If I go out and I get hit by something massive, I will not look the same afterwards as I did before. And the simple picture, if you encounter Jesus, you're not going to look the same. You will be changed. You will be transformed. You will go forth and leave your life of sin. It does not mean you will achieve perfection does not mean that you will not mess up from time to time. But it means there will be a transformation that will begin within you. And you go along with it. You don't make it happen. When you make it happen, then you're into religion. (laughs) And you're forcing the, the externals. When Jesus comes in and takes up residence, he makes it happen from within. You go along with it in obedience and in following. Paul wrote a a letter to a guy called Titus, one of his church leaders. And to, to make the point that this woman didn't just get away with it, you're forgiven, away you go. The grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. And it doesn't just teach us that we get away with it. It doesn't just say, look at you, your, your debt's cancelled. You're not going to have to pay the fine or whatever. What God's grace and God's salvation does is it teaches us to say no. So once we have encountered that grace and that salvation, the worldly passions, the lack of self-control, godless lives, those things we now learn to say no to because there's a transformation that has taken place within us because of his grace. I said earlier that religious people don't know how to handle Jesus. Religious people don't know how to handle sinners. But Jesus knows how to handle sinners. And you can learn an awful lot from this passage about how to sit with a human being whose life is like this lady's life. And to give dignity and compassion and hope and restoration I don't know whether she actually was 
on the ground in front of him or standing up. I, I know it says that at the, towards the end of the passage that she was stood in front of him. I don't know if she stood the whole time. I can't imagine she did, whether she was just on her face. But I love the power of, of this picture of at the start, religion brings her. And when religion brings her, there she is on the ground, down low. But the important thing is whose feet is she at? She's at the feet of Jesus. And when she encounters him, it then becomes a hand reaching down to pull her up. That's what God's people do for other human beings who are made in the image of God. Pull them up. The ministry of just putting the hand out. Come on, up you get. Jesus knows how to handle sinners. He knows how to sit with people and not fill them with shame. He can challenge their sin. He can say to her, go and leave your life of sin. These things, don't do these things anymore. But he can do it in a way that does not cover her with shame and guilt and make her feel worse than she already does. I have a friend who who spoke about a a girl who he met and her life was probably similar to to this woman's life. And uh, he said to her about, about church. And she said, she said, why would I go there? I feel bad enough already. <laughs> you know, for her, church was a place where she would feel worse about who she was. Whereas encountering the people of God and encountering Jesus through the people of God causes people to know that they're not condemned, causes them to see a hand reaching to pull them up and, and to help them to not continue in a life of sin. Just listen to a couple of familiar verses as we close. You know, John chapter 3, the one everybody knows. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, shall not die, but have eternal life. This woman was brought to Jesus to die. She went away with life. But listen to the next verse. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. And any manifestation of church that causes people to feel condemned is not accurately representing Jesus. Because Jesus did not come to condemn anyone. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 One of my favorite verses. I love it. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. (laughs) So the devil may come and chuck dirt all day long and accuse and say, you're this, you're that, you did this, you did that. God can't forgive you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Those accusations can't stick to me. There's a brilliant wee kids sort of animated thing we haven't watched in a long time, but it's it's about these little wooden puppets and they stick they stick what is it? They stick stars on each other when they do well. You get a wee star that would stick on you, and if you did badly, you got a grey dot stuck on you. And there's this wee puppet called what's he called? Punchinello. He keeps messing up and he keeps getting these grey dots stuck on him. And then after he encounters the, the woodcutter or the, the crafter, the person who made him, he goes away and what he finds is the stickers don't stick anymore. Anyone tries to put a sticker on him, it just drops off. Yeah, it's beautiful. 
There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When people really encounter him, encounter his radical holiness, they go away filled with life, filled with grace, filled with power. And if we're to accurately represent him in this community, then that's the sort of people we want to be. I want to be someone that when people spend time with me, they go away feeling more alive. Not feeling worse about themselves, but actually feeling more alive. And that's not just Sunday morning in church. That is literally my attitude in the classroom in school when a bunch of kids walk out. Do they feel more alive because they've just spent a period with me? (laughs) Chemistry sometimes doesn't always make you feel more alive, but you know what I mean. Does our encounter with people cause them to feel alive or to feel condemned? Are we representing Jesus or are we representing religion? Let's pray. There's some good smells starting to waft in through the door. I better stop.